All right, I want you to turn to your table of contents in the very beginning of your of your binder, if you don't mind. So I just, a quick summary of where we're at. If, if you remember the, I did have the one slide up there, the visual, if you will, that shows, you know, kind of the 10 doctrines that we're going to be studying, but it, it has that ring around it. And, and I call that, um, you know, the special revelation, specifically the Bible. And general revelation is outside of that. And certainly we can know and understand things about God. We talked about that the very first lesson just by his creation, right? The awesomeness of God. But that special revelation is really what's needed for us to truly understand the context of who God is in this universe, who we are, who we are in our sin, the need for salvation, all the doctrines. And so that's, that's the order we're going through. That's why we started with bibliology, right? So we understand the scriptures and we understand about its revelation, its canonicity. How do we know that those 66 books are the Bible? And that's closed. We talked about the characteristics of the Bible, right? The inspiration, the inerrancy, the authority, and the sufficiency. And what's really important, though, is how you interpret all that. So that's what you covered last week. So I was not here. I'm curious if there was anything that, that jumped out at you during that lesson that maybe you hadn't noticed before or reminded you of something about the interpretation of Scripture. How about this? Anything that you have learned through the years as you've come to understand the importance of interpreting the Bible? What are some key aspects of that? Satan knew the Bible really, really well, didn't he? Or, or the Old Testament for sure, right? What was the danger there, though? What did he do with Scripture? He twisted it. He took it out of context, right? So I don't know if it was mentioned last week, but understanding Scripture in its context is so very, very important. How about, um, we talked two weeks ago about translations. So important to have a good translation. How many of you, and, and you can be honest, raise your hand, how many of you watched the video by Pastor Gabe? All right, a couple. I really encourage you to take a look at it. It's why we're switching um, our, I'll call it official translation from the NASB, which is an excellent translation, to the ESV, another excellent translation. But he explains why in there. Okay, so I really encourage you. I'm sure you talked about here at Hope, we believe in a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. Not everyone does. And it's, it's really foundational to understanding the scripture because again, that ring, if you will, is going to tell us everything that we're going to talk about now in those nine, nine additional doctrines. So I just wanted you to see the flow of why we started with bibliology, right? That sets the context for everything, the foundation for everything. Now we're going to start diving into those nine um, doctrines, if you will. And for the rest of this quarter or semester, it's really about theology proper, or the study of God. And specifically... This week, we're going to talk about the Holy Trinity. Very easy topic to understand. Be honest with me. What, what have been your understanding or struggles, if you will, with the Trinity? Easy concept? It's not. It's not. I want to read you a paragraph from, uh, again, from Grudem that I thought was very encouraging because he gets right to the point here. Can we understand the doctrine of the Trinity? We should be warned by the errors that have been made in the past. They have all come about through attempts to simplify the doctrine of the Trinity and make it completely understandable, removing all mystery from it. This we can never do. 
However, it is not correct to say that we cannot understand the doctrine of the Trinity at all. Certainly, we can understand and know that God is three persons, that each person is fully God, and that there is one God. That's what I was going to write on the board. If you get anything from today, that's what I want you to zero in on. Not the word Trinity, but those three statements I just said. Let me read them again. We can understand and know that God is three persons, that each person is fully God, and that there is one God. That's what I want you to focus on again and again and again. We can know these things because the Bible teaches them. That's why we focus on them. Moreover, we can know some things about the way the persons relate to each other. But what we cannot understand fully is how to fit together those distinct biblical teachings. We wonder how there can be three distinct persons and each person have the whole being of God in himself and yet God is only one undivided being. This we are unable to understand. In fact, it is spiritually healthy for us to acknowledge openly that God's very being is far greater than we can ever comprehend. This humbles us before God and draws us to worship Him without reservation. But it should also be said that Scripture does not ask us to believe in a contradiction. A contradiction would be there is one God and there is not one God. Or God is three persons and God is not three persons. Or even, which is similar to the previous statement, God is three persons and God is one person. But to say that God is three persons and there is one God is not a contradiction. It is something we do not understand. And it is therefore a mystery or a paradox. But that should not trouble us as long as the different aspects of the mystery are clearly taught by Scripture. For as long as we are finite creatures and not omniscient deity, there will always be things that we do not fully understand. Let me read this quote from Louis Burkhoff. Wisely says, The Trinity is a mystery. Man cannot comprehend it and make it intelligible. It is intelligible in some of its relations and modes of manifestation, but unintelligible in its essential nature. The real difficulty lies in the relation in which the persons in the Godhead stand to the divine essence and to one another. And this is a difficulty which the church cannot remove, but only try to reduce to its proper proportion by a proper definition of terms. It has never tried to explain the mystery of the Trinity, but only sought to formulate the doctrine of the Trinity in such a manner that the errors which endangered it were warded off. And we'll talk about a couple of those. Lastly, Burkhoff also says, it is especially when we reflect on the relation of the three persons to the divine essence that all analogies fail us and we become deeply conscious of the fact that the Trinity is a mystery far beyond our comprehension. It is incomprehensible. It is the incomprehensible glory of the Godhead. You remember I, I talked about that term a couple weeks ago, incomprehensible. We can know truth about God, but we can't know God exhaustively. Right? This is very true when we talk about the Trinity. Okay, I thought that was uh, very encouraging, that it is a mystery. It is a bit of a paradox, um, but we want to focus on those three aspects that I just talked about. All right, so let's talk about analogies. I'm a visual guy. You guys, should, you know, I threw up a slide up there. Yes? Before you get into analogies, um, one of the observations um, I've had over many years, I guess, is that um, 
in pretty much every one of these ten doctrinal areas, there's at least one thing that's really hard to get our minds around, mm. and um, sometimes more. And it shouldn't surprise us that the very nature of God is something that would be beyond our comprehension. Uh, as His created being, um, we shouldn't expect that we have full or, or could have. Yeah, and I think, there, Pastor Allen, I think that's a great, great point. Um, I, I wanted to read that because sometimes I feel like we feel like we should know it all. We should know all this about God. There should be no mystery. And we should be encouraged by what you just said is we're talking about God, the infinite God. There's going to be some things we're just not going to understand. And ultimately, it's a matter of faith, right? We have to trust. All we need. All we need, absolutely, right? That's the, the sufficiency of, of Scripture. Um, you guys are welcome to sit at the table if you want, or you can stay there. It's all good. <laughs> it's easier to drink coffee and all that good stuff. But All right, I want you to go in your binders to page 58. It's the end of the actual lesson where they actually have um, a particular analogy, a physical analogy, and for those who are maybe sciencey minded or engineering minded this this makes a lot of sense and even Grudem talks a little bit um, about this analogy I'm not going to read the whole thing but it's it's actually quite neat when you look at the graph that depending on the pressure and the temperature it can change the state of water that's pretty fascinating right and you can see the three different states there I want to take you down about three quarters down to that first paragraph where right after dry ice. It says, scientists have also observed that such materials, the compound H2 as another example, have a triple point, a unique combination of temperature and pressure at which it exists simultaneously as solid, liquid, and vapor. At the triple point of water, for example, it exists simultaneously as ice, liquid water, and steam. Water, vapor, and all three have the same essence, H2O. Under the right conditions, one compound can exist in all three phases, which have unique characteristics. Although this doesn't prove the trinity, it does illustrate that even proven physical phenomena can evolve a three-in-oneness that is difficult for us to understand. So this is, a will say this, a fairly good analogy, but even Grudem warns, especially for this topic, to try and draw it, right? It's always going to have failures. E even this, where it seems like it's simply presenting itself in different forms. It's called modalism, right? That's not what we believe in. So you just got to be careful of the visual analogies. That's all I want to point out. And again, I'm a visual guy. I love an analogy that can help me explain it. It's really hard to do with the Trinity to get it accurate with a, a visual representation. Grace. Yeah, I just want to say for anybody with a slightly quirky sense of humor, there's an entire video called St. Patrick's Bad Analogies that is just... St. Patrick visiting a couple of Irish dudes trying to convert them, trying to explain the Trinity, and he, you know, he uses the uh, the water analogy. Stops modalism, Patrick, and then they go into like exactly what uh, like it was. A, I can't remember if it was like the uh, the diet of worms or whatever or whichever one debunked the heresy of modalism, and then he tries to use a different one, and uh, that's Arianism, and then he, yeah. they go through a lot of them. It's definitely a little bit quirky. They, you know, 
highly recommend. And the channel has a lot of other really good Christian videos. So. Yeah, sounds fun. Are are we getting a little glimpse of you, Grace? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let me read one more introduction from uh, Grunem as we jump into our study here. This idea of uh, progressive revelation, right? The word Trinity is never found in the Bible though the idea represented by the word is taught in many places. The word trinity means tri-unity or three-in-oneness. It is used to summarize the teaching of Scripture that God is three persons, yet one God. Sometimes people think the doctrine of the trinity is found only in the New Testament, not in the Old. If God has eternally existed as three persons, it would be surprising to find no indication of that in the Old Testament. Although the doctrine of the Trinity is not explicitly found in the Old Testament, several passages suggest or even imply that God exists as more than one person. And we're going to see that today as we go through some of the scriptures. But um, I, I wanted to highlight that point of, you know, what we see in scripture is God's progressive revelation. And we see early on this idea of more than one uh, person, right? We'll see that. And yet we understand it more as God reveals more in his scripture, right? So as we take the totality of scripture, we can really get after this aspect of um, not only the Trinity, but the three, the three statements I made. That's, again, the key point of all this. Okay, all right, so let's turn into your study starting on page 44. Again, talking about the Holy Trinity. There is but one true and living God who eternally exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. And so what you're seeing now is some proof texts that go into this idea of oneness, and I'll call it plurality. So that the first passage there, one of my favorite. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This is called the, the Shema. In Hebrew, that word is here. All right? That's where you get that from. Um, but that was way back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the Lord is one. The next couple verses, I won't read them all, but you are my witness, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. Again, oneness. The next one, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Come near to me, listen to this. Form the first, from the first, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. All right, you start to get a sense of the, the three persons in that one. The next one as well. And after being baptized, Jesus went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove. And coming upon him, behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There you see all three persons in that passage. All right. So again, Scripture clearly talking about the oneness as well as the three individual persons. I love the, the verse from John 10. I and the Father are one. Jumping down to the next bold. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I love those passages that include all three persons. All right, Very distinct. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace, grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. So we talk about the three persons, the one God, 
these three persons of the Godhead have precisely the same nature, attributes, and perfections. Right? This is getting after these three persons are each God in, in essence, fully God. Right? So three persons, one God, but each person is fully God. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Top of the next page. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I love this passage in Hebrews 1. He is the exact, Jesus is the exact representation of his father. Do you want to know God the Father? Study Jesus Christ. The exact representation. Right? Do you want to understand the essence and who God the Father is? Study the life of Jesus Christ. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. But of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. And the last one, and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, <clears throat> be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. These last couple are really emphasizing that these three persons are to be equally worshipped. Right? A a another indication that these three persons are fully God in all of their attributes and essence. Okay? So again, I'm, I'm just going to keep emphasizing God is three persons. Each person is fully God and there is one God. That's what we talk about when we talk about the Trinity. And here we get into some basic concepts. And we start with what is the Trinity not? All right? The biblical doctrine of the Trinity is not the belief that the Godhead consists of three separate distinct gods. That's called tritheism. Right? Can you imagine how confusing that would be if there were three gods? There is one God, only one God. Likewise, the Bible doctrine of the Trinity is not the belief that God has manifested himself in three different roles or modes. We talked about that earlier. That's modalism. Now, is it true that these three persons through Scripture apparently have distinct roles? They do. And we're going to see some of that some more. All right? But they are equally God. So, for example, um, myself as a man, I can present myself as a husband to my wife, a father to my children, and an elder to the church. Okay? I'm one person, but um, displaying myself as three separate people. That would be modalism. That's not how we describe the Trinity. That is not God. It's three separate persons. Okay? So that's, that's the danger when you start to draw what the Trinity looks like, is you can, you can fall down the trap of tritheism or modalism. Any questions on that? Good? Yes? Since you said, like, we do see in the scriptures, like, the Holy Spirit is given as a helper and mm -hmm. performs this type of role. I guess, like, where's the line between modalism and the fact that we do see them performing different functions of being God, I guess? Yeah. Anyone want to tackle that? 
Except Pastor Alan. <laughs> Hold on. And we're going to cover that in a second. Ephesians 1. I love it. Yes, Jess. So, Tears, I don't keep pulling that thread. I don't know if we're getting at your the answer to your I, question. I hope so. Yeah. Like the three persons as opposed to one person. Yes. It's like just different. Yeah. So that's why, you know, again, really focus on those statements. Three persons, one God. Two aspects there. One is another feature of, of the Trinity is that there's hierarchy and there's submission of the Son and the Holy Spirit to the Father, for example, um, and being separate persons, um, that that happens, they can do that, um, but they're, they're, in essence, just one God. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is sometimes we get hung up on the word person, referring to God. Because when, when we think of the word person, what comes to mind is human beings, yeah. people, right? But we have personhood because we're made in God's image. That's right. God is uh, eternally existing in three persons. Um, being a person means having well, personality, right? Intellect, emotion, will, um, spiritual capacity. Um, unlike animals, for example, that don't have a spiritual capacity or that level. Of, um, Let, let's keep going with that because I think as we go through these different aspects, it's really going to solidify um, what we're talking about, especially through the passages. So thank, thank you for that input. Um, Pastor Allen talked about it real briefly, this idea of, of subordinate. So again, we have to be careful, right? We're not saying um, that, that, let's say, for example, Jesus is subordinate in essence or being, right? The role, but he is fully God in, in every aspect. So you do have to be careful with that term, okay? Point C, right, solidifies this. Rather, the biblical doctrine of the Trinity affirms there is only one true God. God has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternally existed, right, is important. And then I would add a, an item three, each person is fully God, like we've been talking about all morning. So it starts with this oneness of God. Where do we see that in Scripture where there is a oneness? And the flow here is kind of from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Again, that progressive revelation of who God is through Scripture. And again, I, I always am just so in awe that we here today get the full benefit of, of all of Scripture versus those who maybe lived during the Old Testament, maybe had the first five books um, in other writings. But what a blessing we have today. All the more reason we have to be good stewards of, of God's Word. So I'm not going to read all of these, kind of focus on um, the bold portions of this. But again, through Moses, the oneness of God, you can see in Exodus, you shall have no other gods before me, right? That was the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 6.4, we just talked about that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Deuteronomy 4, he is God. There is no other besides him. I am he, and there is no God besides me. Clear indication of one God. Again, the Old Testament prophets and Samuel, there is no God besides you. Isaiah, is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock? I know of none, 
I love that. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. In Jeremiah, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. And as, as we flow into the New Testament, Jesus the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We just read that, right? So that's Jesus confirming what was written in the Old Testament. Down in John, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then the Apostle Paul in Corinthians, There is no God but one. There is but one God. There is one God. Christianity, like Judaism, is staunchly monotheistic, one God. Indeed, the doctrine of the Trinity depends on a monotheistic understanding of God. What often do false religions do? Polytheism, right? They introduce additional gods. They, anything they can, you know, Satan, anything he can do to undermine the authority of Scripture, he's going to do that. And often, well, almost all cases, and Pastor Allen, you confirm this, these false religions are, are introducing additional gods, right? Yes, Grace. I just wanted to add, um, a lot of the time when we think of polytheism, it's in terms of like, you know, the Greek pantheon or something where it's a lot of gods that are all relatively good in control things, but the view that Satan is on equal footing with God, that's also polytheism. Satan is not. He's a created being. Yep. He is nowhere near God's level, but a lot of the time the general understanding of Christianity is that there's God and there's Satan and they're duking it out and we'll see who wins. No, Satan's not nearly on that level. So that's something to watch out for. Yep, good point. Yeah, so there's some heresy out there, right, that, that Jesus was created by God. Yeah, and that you start to get into some of the subordination um, and, and um, Arianism and, and other false religions. False, 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 right? He is equal with God. He is equally God. All right, so we talked about one persons, and now we're in the section talking about three persons. And again, these are proof texts. These are great resources to go back to if someone's asking you, well, I don't understand the Trinity. How, how can you say there's three persons but one God? These are texts you can take them back to. The Father is God. We see in Deuteronomy, Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not He your Father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. In Isaiah, For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, you are our Father. And then again in Matthew, Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven. So that's clear indication of, of and that's probably an easy one, right? That fa The Father is God. And then we see the Son is God. I address my verses to the king. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. Talking about Jesus here. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you. In Hebrews, in the last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. 
He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Again, Hebrews 1, one of my favorite. You are my son, today I have begotten you. He shall be a son to me. Let all the angels of God worship him. Again, should receive the same worship as God the Father. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. In Isaiah, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. In Luke, we see he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. And then at the bottom, the holy child shall be called the son of God. And then in John, I mean, the book of John is all about the deity of Christ. I and the father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. For a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. And then it's not written here, but if you want to have a note on John 8, um, verse 58, that, that great verse, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That's a pretty clear indication. All right, go ahead. If, if you want to follow along, if you want to follow along in the book, we're on page 50. We're on page 50 in your binder. Ah, gotcha. His name will be called Wonderful Father, Counselor, yeah, Mighty God, yeah, Eternal yeah. Father, yeah. Prince of Peace. Well, again, I go back to to one God, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, I understand. I, Pastor, yeah. I don't know if you can add to that. Yeah, actually, turn to page fifty-two. Yeah. Here. Uh, <clears throat> We're in a section where it's it's looking at the various attributes of God, how they apply to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And on page 52, we're in the topic of uh, eternal, meaning uncreated. And uh, that same verse is there. Uh, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. So yeah. eternal yeah. father here yeah. means... What, what does father mean? Someone is our father if they, if they were involved in our creation, right? So we are their, uh, the, the children of our father because our father is our origin, our, our source. And uh, when it says here, eternal father, he's, he's, our, he's eternal and he's our creator. Jesus is our creator. Um, another way to, to think of it, perhaps, is he's also um, the, the father, the, the originator from all eternity past. So, you um, see elsewhere in Scripture, the first thing is true of Christ. And so, fulfilling what God revealed through Isaiah, that he's, he's eternal and he's our creator. Originator. That's helpful. Thank you for that clarification. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah? Okay. All right. We're on page 50. Again, talking about Jesus as God uh, in Luke. You are the son of God then. And he said to them, yes, I am. We have a law and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God. 
and then in John 20, Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you, my Lord and my God. And then the last person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, um, just a great proof text is in Acts. And let me read that whole, whole uh, passage there. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself. With his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the piece of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So you can see the connection there. You lied to the Holy Spirit, and then a couple verses later, you lied to God. One and the same. Okay? Great proof text. So we talked about three, uh, one person, the three persons, and then each being fully God in their essence and their attributes. So you can see the, the list here covering some of those attributes, and we'll just cover some of the highlights from there. Um, Pastor Allen just talked about one of those, the uh, eternality, but we'll start with uh, the omnis up front. And uh, I'll go back to Groom. I just want to reference some of those definitions because I think they're important. When we talk about omnipresence, let me read the definition and then we'll go over some of the verses. The doctrine that God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his whole being. Wrap your head around that. So often, right in our, our humanness and our reasoning, we try and fit God into our environment. And he is what? He's transcendent, far above all of his creation. And he operates in a different sphere. Hopefully this is extremely encouraging as well, that God can be everywhere with his entire essence and being. And you see some of the, the proof text here, right? For the, the table set out, so it shows it against the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, Psalm 23 often often quoted as a, a comforting psalm, but it should be. It should be extremely encouraging to know that wherever you are at, the Lord is with you. For the Son, Matthew 28, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then I love this psalm, Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can, oh, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. That should be extremely encouraging, but also create a little bit of fear, right? There is no hiding from the Lord. There is nowhere you can go that you can hide. He is everywhere. All right, his omniscience. The doctrine that God fully knows him. Yes. Sorry, while you're there, that verse in Matthew 28, although our context here was about his omnipresence, um, that verse is actually very useful 
uh, in another sense, because it, it names the Father, Son, and mm. Holy Spirit, but the statement is baptizing them in the name singular, not names plural, name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, emphasizing one God, three persons. Excellent. Yeah, but I, I think I think we have to be careful if we're saying they're omnipresent and, and just based on the definition I read, all three of them can can be everywhere in time in their full being. Right? That's what I'm yeah. it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to understand. Yeah, it's hard. All right, let's keep going to omniscience. The doctrine that God fully knows himself in all things, actual and possible, in one simple and eternal act. Right? He knows all things from time past to the future. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. I love that word, unfathomable. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Right, that wonderful verse in Romans. You see some of that in, in Job, right? God talking about himself as well. For the Son, we see in Matthew, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? In John 1, I'll read the bold. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then the Holy Spirit in Corinthians. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And then if you turn over the last omni, if you will, omnipotence, the doctrines that God is able to do all his holy will. Okay, we see the Father in Matthew. And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jeremiah, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power. I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? And then we see in Matthew for the Son, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So again, this verse from Isaiah focusing on the mighty God aspect, and then the one below it, we just talked about the eternal Father. Um, and, and Pastor Allen, great explanation. The Holy Spirit in Romans, the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit. And then we touched on the eternality, if you will, of God. Again, Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We touched on the verse in Isaiah, but let's... Uh, Focus on Micah, but as for you too, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the class of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And then in Hebrews, yeah, Hebrews, yes. 
that's the verse, of course, that um, um, the religious leaders who the wise men came to looking for Jesus, and they, they were asking him, where will the king of the Jews be born? And he took them to this verse and said, Bethlehem. Yep. What's interesting is they knew it was going to be Bethlehem, but that very verse speaks of him as being not just a king, but God. He's, he's from eternity. And he's going to be born. The wise men understood that. Yeah. They came to worship him as a king. Yeah. The guys who took him to this verse didn't understand that. Amen. Yeah. It's an iron. All right, the next page, and we touched a little bit on this, but we talk about, about God as creator, right? That attribute, and you can see it in all three persons. So I'll just read a couple of these. For the Father, in Genesis, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. In Psalm 102, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So I think it's clear that the Father was there, but what about the Son and the Holy Spirit? All right, we see for the Son in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him and apart from Him. Nothing came into being that has come into being. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Obviously talking about Jesus Christ. I love, love, love that verse. Right, Clearly indicates um, His existence in eternity past. But even the Holy Spirit, again, the creation account in Genesis 1, the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. All three were there at the time of creation. And then we see again, um, emphasizing this, this idea of God and all three persons, right? They all are to be worshipped. In Exodus 20, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land or brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. For the Son, in Matthew 2, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. You know, back to the reference uh, Pastor Allen just made. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it includes the Holy Spirit, right? We see in John. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Romans 8 in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so as we go over to this next section, uh, Tears, I think you brought it up about some of the different roles, and, and we see that right now in the Holy Spirit, what we just read, right? The Holy Spirit is given as a helper, and, and what are some of those functions? He intercedes for us. I love that passage in, in 8 with groanings that we can't understand. Jesus, in the same uh, passage, Romans 8, also talks about inter sitting at the right hand, interceding for us. Right? All have very distinct roles. So I want to, um, if we can, go to Ephesians 1. And I'll be reading from the ESV translation. Ephesians 1, where you're going to see the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. 
And again, this idea of all of them being God, yet playing very distinct roles in our salvation. So I won't read all of this, but if you can follow along, I'll start in uh, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And here's the the verse, chapter 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In chapter or verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons. So here you see God the Father, right, that foreknowledge, choosing us before creation. Alright, so there's, there's a, a choosing or a selection process. Then you go down to uh, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Obviously referencing Jesus Christ. So our salvation comes through Jesus Christ. And then over in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All right, so you see the Holy Spirit sealing our, 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 time, or our inheritance, if you will. Right, so you see all three persons playing a role in that plan of redemption, uh, our salvation. So I, I love that passage, talking about the distinct roles, yet knowing each person is fully God. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. Bit of a mystery, isn't it? Yeah. But God, again, you see the, the three distinct roles. If I'm understanding you correctly, you know, the, the Bible clearly points to him having a foreknowledge of those he's going to um, uh, put in their heart, regenerate their heart. Right, And then you see the only way that's done, though, is through Jesus Christ. And once saved, it's the Holy Spirit that seals us for that day of glorification. I simply wanted to point out the three of them working together um, in salvation. Okay? All right, let's keep going on page 55. And again, it points out, we've covered this uh, passage in Matthew 28, but talking about baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then the passage in Isaiah. And now the Lord, the Father, has sent me, the Son, and His Spirit. So again, this kind of highlights not so much their roles, but the triune nature of the God. But I thought it important to to have that uh, a bit of a discussion on the distinct roles, because we did bring that up earlier. And I love the passage in um, Ephesians. But if you turn over the page to 56, you see at the top there, when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. So yes, it's talking about the three persons, but also talking about one of those distinct roles, right? As helper, right? The Holy Spirit is given as a helper. In John 16, it talks about he, the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Again, that distinct role of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification, a little bit farther down, Hebrews 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, the Father, cleanse your conscience and dead works to serving the living God. Again, talking about the, the triune God. And then the last, Jesus Christ, talks about the Spirit and God the Father. All right, so more evidence of the triune God, but also a bit of um, the distinction of some of the roles that they play, all right, in their, in their personhood, if you will. I've seen the, some of the 
sometimes we take for granted the Holy Spirit. His word now in the church, and that we are temple also of the Holy Spirit. That means God lives with, with us. So that should be something that really to consider and made us just think everything that we do, everything that we think, because it's God with us. Yeah. And also how the Holy Spirit gives us in sanctification. So I think what Jesus said that is necessary that He depart and the Holy Spirit came. So this is really important. Sometimes we think, oh, if we can see Jesus and live in that time. No, Jesus said that it's more important that the Holy Spirit be here. So I think sometimes we don't understand the mm -hmm. importance of the Holy Spirit it's a it's a great great point and it's actually one of the application questions so i want you to hold that thought till we get there no because it's it's vitally important vitally important often we think of the holy spirit as something kind of this impersonal um, sometimes we'll call it it right instead of a person instead of god very very valid point but i want to come to that in in um, the application so last a little bit, and then I do want to make sure we have time for application. There is this section on um, the, the term Elohim, right? And it shows you some of these different root words. Again, the importance of having a good translation and, and the ability to do some of these word studies. But you can see the different forms and their definitions. El, Eloha, Elohim. And then the passage where all three are used at the bottom. For who is God, Eloha, but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God, Elohim, the God, El, who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. So again, why it's important to do those word studies. But I think the point of all this is at the top of page 57. The most common of these is the Old Testament is Elohim, a plural word clearly used for a singular being. Many Christian scholars believe this is evidence of the Trinity. This is reinforced when God speaks of himself in the plural. So we know back in Genesis, right, where the creation account, it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So there, there are some scholars will, will point to that and say, you know, that's the plural word. Um, that's proof of the Trinity. The, the passage or the paragraphs below those passages maybe, maybe give a, another view that, boy, maybe that's not consistent. I don't want to focus on that. Right? What I want you to focus on is those three statements we talked about earlier. Not when it says us or uses the plural word, is that um, definitive for the Trinity? Right. Focus more on those three statements. Where in Scripture does it talk about three distinct persons? Where does it talk about those persons each being fully God? And where does it talk about one God? Right. That's the focus. But it's there for your edification. All right, we, I, we talked about the physical analogy on the last page. I really want to jump into some of the application um, passages here. And let's jump down to number four because you brought it up. What biblical evidence is there that the Holy Spirit is a person, not the impersonal power of God? Let's start with, um, and Pastor Allen brought it up earlier, what, what is a person? Someone who has personality. Okay. Right? Reason, attributes that we see being made in the image of God. We are distinct from the rest of creation. I'm not suggesting we're God, but some of those attributes that you see, the attributes that God has, the Holy Spirit has all of those attributes that we just talked about, all the omnis, and there's a whole list of attributes we didn't cover today, right? So, so when we talk about the Holy Spirit being a person, um, also having all of those attributes of God. But what biblical evidence can we give? 
that identify the Holy Spirit as a person. Yeah, excellent point. Right, so those personal pronouns, right? He, him. Yep, good. What else? So in Acts 13, uh, specifically verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So if yeah. he's speaking. Yeah, <laughs> all right. So, so excellent. He speaks. What, what else? What other emotions do we see in the Holy Spirit? He can be grieved. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We just talked about what does he do on our behalf? He intercedes. How? He groans. All right? That's a very, a very personal God. Um, he gives spiritual gifts. He gives spiritual gifts. Right? In Romans 8, um, his, his, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Right? That's a very personal thing. And that, that should be a very grounding and, and foundational aspect of our assurance is that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children, we are heirs of God. Okay? Excellent. Anything else on that? Um, I, I want to go back to your point. Why is it easy for us sometimes, and this is for everyone, to, to maybe treat the Holy Spirit as... Um, maybe impersonal or, or, or other than God. Why, why do you think some of that is? Here's what I'm, here's what I'm, go ahead, Grace, sorry. I don't want to lead the witness. I mean, I was just going to say, he's the one that we see the, the least direct involvement with. Most of the Old Testament is the Father speaking directly and being very, very emotive, not mm-hmm. necessarily emotional, but saying that he's angry, saying that he's, he's pleased. All of that. It's very personal. Uh, and then obviously, incarnate Christ. It's very easy to look at him as a person. Yep. The Spirit, we mostly have descriptions from the other two. We don't have as much directly from him. So, just a little bit of separation. No, that's excellent. That's what I was looking for. And, and let's pull that thread a little bit more. What is What would you say for the Holy Spirit his his primary goal is? Yeah, yeah. But in, in the Trinity, I guess what I'm getting at, he, he constantly is trying to glorify Jesus Christ, to put the attention on Jesus Christ. So to your point, we don't see a lot of description of the Holy Spirit, and his motivation is to put the focus on Jesus Christ. And yet, I love the reminder, the Holy Spirit is God. He testifies with our spirit. All right, We need to, we need to remember that. We need to pray like that. So good. All right, let me, uh, let me grab one more. Um, how about the first one? Yes? Yes. We can, we can take our scripture and be masters at it, right? Uh, Pastor Allen brought up a great example where they pointed him to scripture and yet they didn't understand. All right, we need, we need the Holy Spirit to understand that special revelation. Absolutely correct. Yep, good. All right, I'll tell you what, I'm going to wrap it up here. Great discussion, great thought, and uh, we'll get you ready for the service. So let me uh, close in prayer.